Time management was big in the 80s. Basically, it said that if you arrange your schedule, you can efficiently and effectively reach all your goals. And how you do it is through calendars and diaries and to-do lists. I worked for a company called Daytimers uh, in that period between the end of school and the start of uni for three months. And I helped pack these diaries. And as every package went out, there went the promise of an organised person finding every minute of the day, a life-changing promise went with every diary. That was the 1980s, but in 2007, there was a paradigm shift. The Harvard Business Review, which is quite influential in the business world, produced and published a game-changing article. It was entitled, Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. Because, well, you can have the best-looking fake leather-bound diary. You can have all the bullet journals. You can have all the to-do lists, but they are useless if you're too fatigued or tired to do the things on your list. And so people started talking about, it's not, it's not, it's not time management that you need, it's energy management. And so how's that worked out for us? Well, last year, the University of Sydney Business School called its new findings, and its findings were that Australian women felt like they had enough energy only for four out of ten days. Australian men only had enough energy for five out of ten days. The University of Sydney Business School called their findings the new energy crisis. The Sydney Morning Herald last year published an article, Australia is in the grip of the sleeplessness epidemic. Organisations like the OECD speak of the poverty that exists within developed countries. A poverty that we have in a country like Australia, we're starved. We're confined, confined to something that they call sleep poverty. We've got the financial resources, but so many of us lack energy because we just don't get enough sleep. We use the phrase burnout quite a lot these days, and yet we have at the same time energy drinks. Both these things coexist in our world, burnout and energy drinks. And it's not just at work, but it's also at home. At home, many of us have, I'd say most of us here this afternoon, have many labour-saving devices, and we keep on collecting labour-saving devices. What we do is we buy these labour-saving devices to reduce the energy that we expend. I mean, when was the last time anyone's opened a garage door by hand? We don't do that anymore. We just press a button. But the problem with this is it costs us twice. It costs us twice because we buy the labour-saving device and then what we do is we pay for gym membership or pool membership or sporting club activity to exert the energy that we've already paid to conserve through the labour-saving device. We have more energy-saving devices, labour-saving devices, but how many of us feel like we have more energy? John Ruskin was an art critic and a man who really understood, I think, the way that people ticked and the way that society operates. And he watched England in the 1950s hit its bootstraps in terms of the Industrial Revolution. And what he feared was that 
as England became consumed in the process of making things, of making machines, he was concerned that those who made the machines would become like what they made, reduced. Humanity reduced to simply an input and an output, lean and efficient and yet somehow less human. And in so many ways, I think we as a society, these studies would indicate that we have realised Ruskin's nightmare. In the Bible, the greatest threat to our energy, in the Bible, the greatest threat to our time and to our well-being are in fact the lies that we believe. You won't see this in any energy management journal from the HBR, Harvard Business Review. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible says a lie is the greatest danger. It has the greatest impact upon your energy and upon your well-being. Have a look at Psalm 5 verse 9. We'll put it up here. This is what David says. This is the world that he lives in. This is his environment. He says... Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. This is the world that David lives in. And his th- the threats before him are those who speak lies. And their means is deceit and their intent is destruction. And interestingly, in the next psalm, in Psalm 6, verse 6, we see the impact of the lies in the environment that David exists within. He says, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. King David needs to go on a sleep trial. He needs to read a good article on energy management. Is that what he needs? No. Is that what we need? Well, perhaps it would be helpful, but it's not what we most need. What David needed and what we most need, what we're going to see this afternoon, what we most need is to believe the promises of God instead of the lies of this world. It's just as well for us that we're not in David's position, that we're not surrounded by a world of lies and deceit. It's just as well that we don't succumb to the big lies that we hear in our world, the kind of lie that says you have to create your own reality, the kind of lie that says you have to create your own identity, you have to define and justify your existence. It's good that we don't believe those lies. Have you noticed these days how how people can't just be one thing in terms of their occupation? You know, a journalist is no longer just a journalist. They have to be a journalist, author, social commentator, historian. Um, a mum can really no longer ju- just be a mum. It must be a mum and entrepreneur. Uh, someone unemployed can no longer be someone just unemployed. They have to be a lifestyle blogger or influencer. I was uh, driving past uh, through Double Bay uh, yesterday. And there was a specialist doctor and he was an ENT and plastic surgeon, and there was a man who's very clever. He couldn't just be an ENT specialist, he was also a plastic 
surgeon. Why is it that we feel this constant sense to, well, to enlarge the list of the accomplishments in our lives? Because we live in a world without God. That's why. And what we see in our world as people want to list their accomplishments and their activities and their achievements, what we see is an attempt to define who they are, to understand who they are and project that to the world outside of God. But the problem with this is that when we try and create our own reality and our own identity, this to us is a crushing burden. And it's not just a crushing burden, it is something that consumes all our time and all our energy devoted to creating and curating a version of ourselves, an ideal version of ourselves for wider consumption. It's hard, endless, draining work having to create ourselves who we are. And combined with social media, we hear the lie that on social media, this is in fact how we connect, but is in fact the place where we are judged. And we judge ourselves worse the most. We compare ourselves to one another and we never kind of measure up. We're not enough and therefore somehow we have to work harder to produce a more palatable version of ourselves, not just to the world, but to our own sense of pride. Many people despair. Can we get that door closed, Jess? Sounds like they're having a lot of fun. Don't you wish you were out there? We're having fun. How much energy goes into this? Lies. Lies, they sap and they extract energy because in their extraction of energy, it's only a prelude, a note of warning to their ultimate intent. The lie's ultimate intent is our destruction. See, lies in the Bible distort reality, but more than that, they don't just distort reality. Lies in the Bible kill us. And so what we need to hear this afternoon is the truth. We need to hear the truth of God's promises. We need to hear the truth that he that he says to us that it's not a version of ourselves that we need to create. It's a relationship with him that we need to enjoy. And God's word is most powerful in its context. And so that's why I want us to just set the scene for the book of Isaiah. We are going to be focusing on the end of the, the chapter 40 of Isaiah. So why don't you open up to Isaiah chapter 40. Just as you're opening up there, it's page 507 in the blue and 676 in the brown. The book of Isaiah is a really interesting book. It's an interesting piece of literature because it has this fault line essentially running right down the middle of it. If you like, there are these two tectonic plates. Chapters 1 to 39 is one tectonic plate. And the other tectonic plate is chapters 40 to 55. And these two plates rub up against each other. And when they rub up against each other, there is this earthquake. I'm going to focus on this earthquake at the end of of chapter 39 and at the start of chapter 40. 
Who knows what um, essentially chapters 1 to 39 might be summarised in a... Who could summarise chapters 1 to 39 in a word, if, if anyone knows anything about the book of Isaiah? What, what might be one word to summarise the first section of the book of Isaiah? Uh, remnant? Yeah, that's more to the end, yep. What's that? Judgment. Judgment. That's right. She's clever because she's my wife, but she was always so here this morning. Uh, that's what happens. In the first 39 chapters, Isaiah gives God's people a pounding. Chapter after chapter, Israel hear of their sin and how their sin is in fact worse than the nations around them. And Isaiah's job, as he's called in chapter 6, is to articulate God's standards, God's measure, not, not human standard, but God's standard. And when God's standard is placed before his people, they don't measure up. And here, as chapter 39 ends and chapter 40 starts, this bomb is dropped, this earthquake Occurs because at the end of chapter 39, God says, Finally, He's had enough. He says, You're going to be taken away. You who were to inherit the promised land, my people are going to be taken, taken into captivity. You who were to be free in the land will be captives, not in and around Jerusalem, but in Babylon. And so it ends. Chapter 39, with this dark note of impending judgment, but then suddenly, and, and, and totally unexpected, and unexpectedly, there's this incredible note of hope. Why don't you open up to Isaiah chapter 40? Because Isaiah starts not with these words of not with words of judgment, but in fact, words of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. Here is the context for comfort. The context for the comfort of God's people is their exile and their judgment. You might remember that in the book of 1 Peter, Christians were described with this same language, that we were people who weren't home. And it is true. We are people who are in exile, but we are different from the people here because we are not under judgment. Chapter 40 is this remarkable chapter, this ray of light in this dark trajectory for God's people. Why is there hope now for God's people? Why is there comfort? Well, we're told there in verse 2, because despite their sin, they will be forgiven. How? How will they be forgiven for their sin? What's in verses 3 and 4? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. My great auntie Cheryl, she's 94, bless her heart. Her husband, my great uncle Alan, was the chief engineer building Coronation Parade in Enfield. And my great-auntie recalls the opening, uh, the official opening, because she was in the front car, I think it was, and she said, 
She felt like the queen in that car. She was waving to everyone as they, uh, as they passed down Coronation Parade. Well, my great auntie might have felt like the queen, but here we're talking about, well, we're talking about a king coming. Verse 3 has that sense of rolling out the red carpet. Any ancient listener would have known from the language here because when a king or an emperor went to another part of the kingdom that he hadn't been to for a long while, they wouldn't make him walk on the road. No. They'd build a brand new road for him to walk on. We have an inscription example from ancient Babylon and in the announcement that the king is going to a particular region, the announcement goes like this, make his way good, renew his road, make straight his path, hew him out a track. The king is coming, Isaiah is saying. But this isn't any ordinary king. Why is it, no any, uh, why is it not an ordinary king there in verse 3? Have a look closely. He's saying the king's coming, but it's no ordinary king. What kind of king is coming or what is unusual about this king? Yep. At the end of verse 3 there, it says, this is God who is coming. And when he comes, verse 4, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, rough ground shall be become become level, and rugged places are plain. See, what Isaiah is saying here is it's not just a king that's coming. Here, Isaiah is saying it's God who is the king that is coming. When a human king comes, you might make a bridge for him so he doesn't have to go up and then down. But when this king comes, Isaiah is saying, all the chasms vanish. The deep crevice and the canyon is filled in because this is God who is the king. He is coming, Isaiah is saying. And Isaiah is drawing on one of the deepest hopes of people like us, the human humans. Isaiah here is saying that the whole world is like an in, uh, uninhabitable wilderness. The world is like a desert. And we know that. We know that there is disease, there's war, there's poverty, there's strife. That's all out there so often. And many of us know that there's also brokenness, and it's not just out there. There's brokenness here, within us. The whole world is like this. Why? Well, the whole world is like this because it's under incompetent managers, because our lives are under incompetent leaders. Us. We're the incompetent leaders. We're the incompetent managers. You see, if you want the strength and the energy that we're going to see that God offers, you need to first know that you are broken, that you are in fact a desert, and that you need to be filled and you need to be filled by him. Secondly, Isaiah says the king is coming. But you need to remember, if he is God, you need to remember what God is like. 
See, in our modern world, it's quite obvious that when our society isn't particularly interested in God. Why? Because we've become creators ourselves. In our world and in our lives, what do we do? We create our identity. We create our sense of worth. But if we think that, Isaiah wants to remind us that we are people are not creators. We are mere creatures who God has created. See, we do not create our sense of identity. God gives us a sense of who we are. And we almost, as we seek to create our own sense of identity, our own sense of worth, we do such a good job at it. It's so easy to believe the lie that we ourselves are creators. But Isaiah has a question for our society. He has a question for us, the same question that he had for the ancient world. It's there in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked out the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They regard it as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. When we are creators of our own lives, we make ourselves big and we make God small. At least you can do that in your mind for a while. But yesterday I felt like a grasshopper. I went for a swim with Mandy and we went to a beach in the eastern suburbs. It was quite rough. The waves were coming in at close proximity. And I felt very small. I felt very small. And then walking back to the car, you go up this steep incline above, uh, above the beach, probably 50 metres above the beach, and there you see those same waves that made you feel so small. And those waves are the things that look small. You see the beauty of the ocean before you when you're, being, when you're in the surf and there's wave coming after wave coming. All you can do is focus on the wave that's before you. You see, God is not, his perspective is not just the wave that's in front of us. His perspective is the whole world that he has made Our view as humans is inherently limited. All we focus on is the wave in front of us. Our view is local and individual, but God's view of reality is global and corporate. It's not just what's important to me or my family or my people. It's what's important to the whole entire world. Verse 21, have you not known... Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? The reality is, for God's people, they knew who he was. 
They had understood who he was, but now for them, God seems hidden. Have a look there in verse 27. What do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? You see what God's people, the situation that they're in, they feel abandoned by God. God, in all his bigness, can't see them. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Or perhaps... Has God ever felt distant to you? Because there are two ways for something to be hidden. The first way for something to be hidden is to lose it, to to have it, like my keys or my wallet. I'm always losing them, at home in particular, and I'm always blaming the kids. Mandy keeps telling me it's not the kids who keep losing them, it's you. The the first way to for something to be hidden is to lose it, to not know where it is. The second way is to disregard it, to shut it out. And it's the second way in which God's people have, well, they've shut God out. It's not that God can't be found. It's that God won't be found. And Isaiah wants to shake God's people up. He says to them, wake up. God says through his prophet Isaiah, wake up. Verse 28, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Have you not heard? Of course you've heard. You know this truth, but you don't want to believe and live by the truth of who God is. Many religions have a sense of who God is, someone bigger than themselves. And yet for so many, we don't want God in our lives. It's not because we don't know something about him. It's because we don't want to know anything about him. You see, the solution for God's people is to relearn what they already know. Uh, If you've been a Christian for a little while, you get to the point where you've pretty well heard it all. Like, there might be a couple of words that you're unfamiliar with and you just brush up in a sermon on the definition, you forgot about that verse. But the reality of the Christian life is that we are constantly learning. We are relearning what we so easily and too easily forget. They already possess the truth, God's people. But that doesn't mean that they understand his ways. Have a look there in verse 28. His his understanding no one can fathom. You see, Isaiah is calling his people to understand who God is. That he's a God who doesn't change. He's a God who is eternal, but he doesn't change. Have you thought about that for a moment? What's one of the realities? Just a non-negotiable thing in our world is that change is inevitable, right? You hear that. Sometimes at work, they say that. Change is inevitable. But you think about it. God is eternal. And yet, he never changes. And he never abandons his purpose. He never grows tired 
or weary. And this is, this is true. This is true that God is so beyond us. And yet, there is something more than simply a reminder that Isaiah wants to give his people of the nature of God. He, wasn't, he wants to help them understand who God is, but he wants to give them the good news of this comfort. And it's there in verse 29, because this God, who himself is power, who himself is a source of energy, he's a God that gives what he has. He gives, verse 29, strength to the weary and increase and increases the power of the weak. You see who God helps there in verse 29? God helps those who help themselves. Is that what it says? Who does God help? Who does God provide strength for? He strengthens the weary. He gives his power, the same power that has created the world, he gives it to the weak. There's a slight difference of uh, nuance in those two worlds. Weakness there in verse 29 has this has this internal sense that where you lack the capacity. Have you ever felt like that? You just don't have the capacity for something. Weariness is different. Weariness has an external sense where you've come under the the pressures of life and those pressures have crushed you and made you tired. Have you ever felt like that? You don't have enough within yourself. You're weary. You're tired. Have a look at the promise of verse 29. He gives strength. He gives his strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. What he is, is what he gives. Instagram is dominated by men and women at peak condition. Verse 30, God's word reminds us that as wonderful as humanity is in its peak condition, it doesn't stay like that. Human strength is limited. And so we are not to trust in ourselves. We are not to trust in others. No, verse 31, Isaiah calls the people to to hope and to wait in the Lord. Have a look at verse 31. What are we to do? But those who wait, or sometimes translated as hope in the Lord, he will renew their strength. God's people are called to hope. Hope's such a lovely thing. You know, we don't do cross stitches much these days, but what I have seen in people's houses, and they're not particularly Christian or religious, but, um, you know, timber cutouts of beautiful words like hope. You know, up there on the wall. Have you seen that? Yeah? We like hope. It's a nice thing. But what's the difference between hope and optimism? American author says that optimism arises out of the denial of real facts. However, hope persists despite the clearly recognised facts because it's anchored in something beyond Here we're not talking about hope as just a nice word to put up on your wall. Here we're talking about hope 
that is grounded in the very nature of who God is, the one who has made everything. This is not sentimental, cheap comfort for those who are weak and weary. This is truth. This is truth grounded in the very creation that we exist in right now. There is darkness. The Bible recognises the deep darkness of our world, but it also helps us to see the dawn of hope. But that's hard, because waiting is hard. I say to my kids, be patient, and what do they say back to me? Dad, I don't like being patient. Well, I don't tell them, but neither do I. But here we are told to hope in the Lord to wait upon him in verse 31. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? It means firstly to obey him. You see, Isaiah says the king is coming. And we know as Jesus walked this earth that the king had come. And he died and he rose again and he says that he's coming again and so we're waiting for his coming. And so we need to treat the Lord Jesus as king. We need to treat him as king and we need to treat him as king when we say, not my will, but your will. We need to obey him. Secondly, to wait means to trust in his timing and not our own. And thirdly, to wait means to expect, to wait in hope. To wait in hope means that if he really is the king, if he has made everything, then he is in control of every moment of my life. And I am in fact not treating him as king unless I have high expectations about what he might do in my life. Because what does he do in our life when we wait in him? Have a look there at the end of verse 31. He says that those who trust in him, who wait upon him, they will soar on eagles' wings. Eagles is beautiful, majestic bird, the greatest bird. Soaring here is the image We're told that those who trust will run and they will not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Here is the promise from Isaiah that those who wait in the Lord will will be renewed. They will find fresh strength. Those who know that they are broken and who come to the Lord Jesus as king will be renewed. It's an unnatural strength, as if they had wings And more than that, it's a divine strength. But so often we don't come to this king. In fact, we're up to our fourth point, where energy thieves still. So often we believe the lies. And there are three kind of aspects or areas of life where we so often believe lies instead of believing the truth of who God is. When we're discontent, we're believing a lie, and it saps us of energy. 1 Timothy 6 says that if you have food and clothing, you can be content. Distraction 
is so often an area that saps us of energy. We so easily and happily expend ourselves for things of no eternal value for ourselves. But we so often find it so hard to expend ourselves for things of eternal value for the sake of others. And doubt is something that steals our energy when we're tired of waiting, when we've lost hope. So how do you maintain hope? How do you maintain hope in the face of unanswered prayers, roadblocks, pain and injustice? What's to realise that just as God's people weren't home, neither are we. It's to realise that we are not our own saviours, that the Lord Jesus is our saviour. It's to realise that if you only hope in the things of this world, God promises very little for us. No, we need to be renewed, constantly coming back to him. This is the pattern of the Christian life. It's to exert ourselves and then to come to him to be renewed. And what are we renewed for? Well, here's where I'll close. If you pop up Colossians chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 28, we're renewed for the cause of gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul says that he proclaims the Lord Jesus, correcting and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is his task. This is what he call, this is the call upon his life. And this is what the Apostle calls us to as well. And how does he do this? Verse 29, to this end, I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. See, God, God is working in us for the cause of the gospel within our church, for the sake of sacrificial ministry. And when we labour and struggle, not on our own strength, God himself energises us with his energy. And so we need to be renewed. We need to keep coming to him because the the sacrificial service of God's people in this church is in fact our highest joy. And he will give us what we don't have, what we can't produce. And when he does, joy is the result. I was reminded this week as Mandy and I were listening to a sermon, we were driving along a sermon by a man named John Piper. And in the sermon, Piper points to um, this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a wonderful reminder. It's a wonderful reminder of the treasure that God is. And Piper's point is, yes, there is treasure. But his point is that the parable does not teach that we signal the preciousness of the treasure by selling all that we have to get it. Piper says, no, it's far more radical than that. It teaches us that we signal the preciousness of the treasure by selling joyfully by selling joyfully all that we have. See, are we trusting in the promises of God in a world of lives? 
Is your hope in the Lord? Do you know he's strengthening as you commit yourself for sacrificial, sacrificial service in this church and beyond? Let's pray that that might be the case. Amen.